0: Haggai chapter two. So, um, and maybe maybe it was because this is what I this is what I am. It caught my attention. I'm kind of in the uh, the last days of the millennials. Um, but, but maybe ten years ago or so, uh, maybe not even that long ago, there was some questions being asked uh, because of present circumstances. Why are millennials so discouraged? Um, there, you know, things seem to have been going good economic, uh, economically. Jobs were there to be had. There was economic growth and things of that nature. But uh, the positive things that were uh, the positive outlook did not match uh, the attitude of folks that fall into my age range and and maybe a little uh, a little later. But um, I guess that really the question, Uh, Goes is more general than just why does a certain age group that we have labeled face discouragement and and, and comes into really why do people get discouraged at all? And there are a multitude of causes of discouragement or symptoms of discouragement, but typically and, and maybe ultimately, people are discouraged when what they think should happen does not align with what actually happens, right? We get discouraged when our reality does not match our expectations. We had hoped for something and our hopes are disappointed. And this is the context into which the word of the Lord comes in Haggai chapter 2 and verses 1 through 9 is where we'll draw our attention this morning, it is the second of four prophetic oracles um, that the book of Haggai, or Haggai, I'll probably say it wrong, uh, is and probably say it two different ways, is centered around. So there are four, this is the second of the four prophecies that we find in the book of Haggai. Let's, let's read it together, uh, if, if you'll read it with me. So Haggai chapter... Two, And let's let's read down through verse 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say... Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Father, speak to your people in your kindness the way that you spoke to your people in your kindness through Haggai. And we pray it in Christ's name, amen. So you want to hear something neat this week in ancient Hebrew history. I wish I had some news uh, uh, sounds here. Haggai spoke to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, Joshua, the high priest, and all the people, the very words of the text For the sermon so this message from God would have been delivered by Haggai six days ago on October 17th some 2500 plus years ago so we are we are dealing with something just providentially that would have happened within this week way back 2500 years ago what this is is the last day of the feast of tabernacles that's that's where we are And the Feast of Tabernacles is the last day of a uh, week-long, or this is the last day, this word comes on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles is a week-long celebration of the way God provided for His people in the time of the wilderness wanderings. But it was different at this time for this Feast of Tabernacles because there didn't seem to be a whole lot of rejoicing, It was due to the hard economic times that we heard about last week in chapter 1. And then there were those who may have witnessed or heard of the glory of the first temple. And they were discouraged because the construction of the new temple revealed as it progressed a lesser architectural glory that the word of the Lord says didn't even compare to the glory of Solomon's temple or the first temple. And it is into this moment, this last day of the feast, when there should have been more rejoicing than there was. And this last day of the feast, when more than likely there was a large crowd gathered around that gave Haggai the opportunity to address this large audience. It is into this context that the word of the Lord comes from Haggai and it is a word of encouragement but there are some reasons for their discouragement and we want to look at those first why did the Lord need to speak a word of encouragement to these people verses 3 through 4 make it plain that the people were discouraged. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, and be strong, Joshua. They had, the people had their hopes disappointed when they compared the architectural glory of the current temple to maybe the stories that they had heard about the first temple. And there there may have even been some really old folks in the crowd that saw the first temple, Solomon's temple, in its former glory. And now in their eyes, it's nothing. As a matter of fact, Ezra chapter 3 verses 12 and 13 give us a... A similar account of something that happened when the foundation of the temple was laid probably about 17 years before uh, this word. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. So some of the folks, when they saw the temple, the foundation of the temple being laid, they wept because they were discouraged about how small or how unlike the first temple this present temple was. They felt discouraged, and this was apparently a general feeling among the people of God in Haggai chapter two. But we know that discouragement doesn't happen in a vacuum, doesn't it? Does it? Discouragement doesn't just all of a sudden come upon us, and at one moment we were joyful and rejoicing, and suddenly we're discouraged. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. Sure, they were discouraged because their reality didn't match their expectations. And we'll speak to that in a moment. But, but those circumstances, Dale spoke to us about last week, was certainly fertile soil for the seeds of discouragement to grow. Chapter 1 told us that times were tough. They were living in, in tough times. And it was just a, a result of of the times that they were living in. They had been in exile for 70 years and they were brought into, uh, into a, a place to rebuild the temple and so they were a new bunch of folks that had a task that laid before them and they had limited resources. And then we also learned last week that tough times came just because they were tough times. But we also learned That some of the tough times were brought on by their own misplaced priorities. Times were tough because times were tough. And then times were tough because they had made it that way. And either way, the fact remains that times were hard for the Israelites. And, And we have to say from our own experiences that tough times... Must have played a role in their discouragement. We can relate to these folks, is what I'm trying to say, and, and I think that we can relate as as Dell uh, mentioned last week in our current moment. It is it is amazing to me, as it was as Dell expressed last week, how uh, immediately the Book of Haggai speaks to our particular circumstance. We currently. Feel the crunch of tough times in our society. Our money is not as valuable as it used to be. There there are not as many goods as there used to be. It seems like things are unstable politically in our our country and in our cultural climate. And, And if that weren't enough, it seems like that every month, some new scandal comes to light in the church. Even in conservative evangelical circles. And then perhaps maybe even worse than that, it seems like that these tough times are just the beginning of tougher times. Like when we look into the future, we're not thinking, well, if we can just endure a few more months of this, that things are going to be brighter in just a few days. No, we feel the way that that tougher times may be looming in the future. And that makes us feel unsettled, doesn't it? What I'm saying is that we also live in tough times. Maybe not as tough as they could be, but I think we would all admit that tougher than they were. I will also say in uh, alluding to chapter 1 that many of us did or should have last week considered our ways, right? And sometimes considering our ways is unsettling, we amen, we we realize that some of the tough times that we face individually is actually a result of misplacing our priorities. And did anybody consider their ways last week? And they're like, "Ooh, yeah. that that sermon was was talking about me. and I, I can I can attest that I've considered my ways, and I have to say that, misplacing priorities, paying more attention to our own affairs, then tending to the more important things like knowing and serving the Lord. And then all of these things combined can do to us what it does to the Israelites, and that is make it easy to become discouraged. So times were tough, but then maybe at the heart of discouragement, the work that they were involved in was not as grand as they had hoped. Who saw the house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Tough times, misplaced priorities, feelings of guilt provided fertile soil for the seeds of discouragement to begin to grow and the fruit of discouragement ripened in the hearts of the Israelites when they compared Solomon's temple to the temple they were in process of constructing. The legends of what once was Made them feel ashamed of the work that they were doing at that time. I'm sure that many of the returned exiles must have had high hopes for what the temple would look like once it was rebuilt. They had been assigned to this task and they may have on their way back to the land that God had promised to give to the people of Israel. They they were talking and thinking and strategizing about what a wonderful work this was going to be and how big and beautiful and how much like the glory of Solomon's temple it was going to be. But that hope was that expectation was not realized. We see in our text and in Ezra chapter three that there was no comparison between the glory of Solomon's temple and the temple they were constructing. And this was the source of their discouragement. Their hopes had been disappointed and it crushed their spirits. The Israelite exiles had hoped to be engaged in a grander work than they were engaged in. They had hoped to restore the temple to her first glory, but there was just no way to make that happen with their present circumstances and their limited resources and perhaps the distractions. They felt like they had failed their forefathers, maybe. Maybe they felt like they had failed those who had charged them to build a temple. And they were concerned about how they might feel about that, their oppressors. Perhaps they thought that they had failed God by not providing a grand temple for Him to dwell in. And I don't have time to deal with this, but often a low view of God or a wrong view of God. Feeds discouragement. And it was most likely some mixture of all of these. But what happened is it combined to leave the Israelites discouraged in their work. But that's not the end. What I'm doing is not preaching how the sermon ends. But I am setting up the context into which the word of the Lord comes. This This is when the Lord speaks to His people in this second oracle. God expresses His love for His people and His concern really for His own glory when He speaks words of encouragement through the prophet Haggai. And it's to those words, those words of encouragement, that we turn now. The first word of encouragement is be strong. The Lord Lord knows the immediate needs of His people and the immediate need at this moment is encouragement. I love that the word of the Lord leads with take courage. It isn't he doesn't lead with though he could have left led with I told you so. Yeah. Right? But that's that is not how God is. He leads, the immediate need is encouragement. He knows that there is no correction that can come until the people's faces are lifted. Until their hearts are lifted. And so he he says, take courage. This is the word the Lord gives. Hazak is the Hebrew word which is spelled as it's transliterated (laughs) HZQ. But it's be strong in the ESV. But it, but it also means show courage. And it's actually translated in the uh, New American Standard Bible as take courage. Their hopes were disappointed. The work that they were engaged in was not as grand as they had anticipated. And they needed to take courage. The people needed to take courage. The leaders needed to take courage. And God knew that he was doing a work in them and through them that would... Far exceed what they could see with their natural eyes. So, what he needed to do in their lives was to encourage them. And so he says, Take courage and work. And work is the second word of encouragement that the Lord gives through Haggai. The word of the Lord was their source of encouragement. Take courage, the Lord says. But the Lord, word of the Lord also instructs them where to, direct that, where to direct that strength. Take courage, be encouraged, but also work. When you, when you feel encouraged, when you feel strong, when you have a spark of hope returning to your soul, then let me tell you what to do with that. Work. Do something about it. He says, at the end of verse 4, Be strong, all, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, this word of encouragement did not come to them so that they could have a good and solid Feast of Tabernacles. It wasn't so that they would just feel encouraged for the sake of feeling encouraged. The word of encouragement was so that they would continue the work. And listen, again, this is speaking, I think, directly to us, maybe just to human nature in general, it is often the tendency of people to cease working on some project when they begin to think the work will not, as be, will not be as grand as they anticipated. Has anybody ever anybody ever faced that? They would. It's kind of illogical when you think it. When I was typing it out, I was like, "Wait, I do that," but also that's, that doesn't follow very good logic. They would rather not complete the work or they would rather not complete the work at all if it means the work once completed is not as grand as they had hoped. If it can't be as good as I thought, then I ain't doing nothing. In Jamie layman terms. layman terms. <laughs> if it ain't going to be if it's not going to turn out like I hoped it would turn out, then I'm not going to do it. Right? Isn't isn't that that the tendency? What they hope to accomplish prevents them from accomplishing anything at all. And this, I think, is one of the major dangers of discouragement. It's the danger the Israelites were facing. Well, if it can't be as grand as as we hoped, then we're just not going to do anything. And that's why the Lord says, Take courage and work. Take courage and continue to work. Don't allow your discouragement to keep you from finishing what I I have called you to finish. Listen, I can't speak for everyone here, but I can kind of speak for myself because I know that this kind of thing happens in ministry, in the ministry context. Pastors enter ministry with high hopes of reformation and revitalization. We look forward to a thriving and healthy congregation that is on mission in every sphere and advancing the kingdom in the community and beyond. Right? That's our mission statement. That's what we write our uh, master's paper on. But we often find the reality of ministry does not meet our expectations in a multitude of areas, and we feel discouraged. Burn out. I thought things would turn out different. It's a path that I have walked more times than I care to admit. Some of you may feel the same way about serving the Lord in whatever capacity He has gifted you or given you the opportunity to serve in. You thought it would be grander. You thought you would see more progress by now. You thought it would have turned out differently. Whatever the case is, First, let me say that if I'm speaking to you, because I probably don't say it enough, thank you so much for serving. And thank you so much for pushing through difficult times. But I want to say to you, on the authority of our text this morning, take courage and continue the work. Because God is working through you, and He is accomplishing something greater than you can see with your natural eyes keep working god's working through you the next work of a uh, word of encouragement rather is i am with you it comes in the way of god reminding his people that his presence remains with them now i know that Some of you, we have a a healthy understanding of God's omnipresence of the nature of God and we hear this word of encouragement and we think, well, what's the big deal? Of course God's presence is with him. But this was a big deal for the Israelites due to the close association of the temple with God's presence. The temple was understood as the dwelling place of God. And to not have a temple very much meant in the Hebrew mind that the presence of God among them was in jeopardy if God was with them at all. However, God reminds them that He doesn't need a house for His presence to be with them. I am with you. Wait, there's not a house, there's not a temple, what do you mean? No, I am with you. And the reason I say that God was reminding them of this is because He has already said something similar. In 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want to read verses 5 through 7. whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And actually, this fits perfectly into their context. Because Haggai's prophecy came on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is what the Lord is alluding to when he speaks the word through Nathan the prophet to David. I dwell, I listen, I don't need a house. I've, I was, did I not do mighty and wondrous things for you? Did I not prove that I was with you before there was ever a thought of me dwelling in a particular house? And again, I think that we can begin to see the connection that sometimes the wrong view of God feeds our discouragement. When we start thinking that God needs something to dwell in, we have a small view of God like He's going to fit in a house, right? And then that, oh, well, if if we don't have a house, then the Lord can't dwell with us. And God is saying, no, you need a bigger view of me. You need to see me in all of my grandeur and all of my glory to understand that you ain't going to build a house for me. You won't build one big enough. They're celebrating God's faithfulness during their time in the wilderness. And God is reminding them that His presence is with them. Not because they had a grand temple for Him to dwell in. But listen, but because the fact that they were His covenant people. This is why God was dwelling with them. Not because they had done something for Him. But because He had made a covenant with them and He is faithful. I will walk on because you are God. He was faithful in the time of the tabernacles when there was no temple and he is faithful to them now. Even when their expectations of the temple are not being realized, they do not need to fear, as he says in verse 5, but they need to take courage and work because God has never needed a grand house to be faithful to his covenant and to be faithful to his covenant people. Even the language in verse 6 harkens back to Sinai when God struck the Mosaic covenant with His people and promised that His presence would remain with His covenant people. He talks about the shaking of the heavens and the earth and He says yet once more as a reminder that I have already shaken the earth again. And you remember when I shook the earth? It was when you were in the wilderness, when you were at Sinai, and the mountain shook as I struck the earth. Covenant with you. I made this covenant with you and I will shake the earth again. He is saying, You are my covenant people, and my faithfulness does not depend on you. My faithfulness depends on my covenant with you. What a word of encouragement for those people who might have been thinking God was distant because He didn't have a temple to dwell in. And can I say to us folks that God's faithfulness to His covenant people in the Old Covenant encourages us now. Because beloved, those of us who are in Christ are God's covenant people under the New Covenant. And God has proven in the Old Covenant that He will be faithful to His covenant people. And so we can take heart as people under the new covenant that God will be faithful even when we feel discouraged even when we feel like that the work is not turning out like we had hoped even when we think God how are you going to move in the world today if I don't complete my ministry if I don't fulfill my schedule if I don't check all of my boxes how are you going to do anything in the world and God saying me being faithful to the covenant has, has very little to do with you. I was faithful in the old covenant and I'll be faithful to my people under the new covenant. So what does that do? Cause us to twiddle our thumbs and say, well, who would be faithful? No. It causes us to take courage and do what? Work. And the final word of encouragement, at least the final one that I have drawn out of this text is that better days are coming. Better days are coming. Those words of encouragement come in verses 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord. This final word promises brighter days ahead. These folks were discouraged because the glory of the temple they were building did not match the glory of Solomon's temple. But the Lord promises that the latter glory of the second temple would exceed the glory of Solomon's temple. And so the word is, be encouraged. Brighter days are coming. Haggai prophesies of a time when heaven and earth will again be shaken, when the treasures of all nations will come in, when the glory of the present temple would be greater than the first, and peace God's shalom will abide. And those things did happen to some degree in the near future, but really a dilemma is presented here because there is no evidence that the treasures of all nations ever came to this second temple. It doesn't seem that any lasting peace ever came And the architectural glory of the second temple never eclipsed the first, even with Herod's remodeling project, which would have been the temple that Jesus moved in and out of. The dilemma is resolved, however, when we understand that the greater glory comes in what the second temple represents, and that is the construction of a new temple with a people under a new covenant, under a new ultimate prophet, priest king who you have represented as the main characters in this prophecy Zerubbabel Joshua and Haggai the king or the I should say the governor the priest and the prophet Jesus is this ultimate priest prophet king So Jesus fulfilled what the physical temple could only foreshadow. That is, God dwelt with man in Christ. And further than that, that Christ would inaugurate a day when God would dwell in man by the Holy Spirit. This is the latter glory that Haggai spoke of and actually the wording is almost assuredly arranged that it is latter glory of this house instead of the glory of the latter house. So it's the latter glory, the last glory of this house. The last glory of what that temple represents or points to is where we are living and what we are anticipating. The fact that we have a group of people here who have been redeemed by God's grace. They have uh, been placed in the new covenant and the Spirit of God, God, the third person of the triune Godhead dwells in them, the temple of the living God. This is the brighter day that was coming for the people of God. And the temple they were working on pointed immediately to that. So take courage and work is the message from God. Because a brighter day than you can imagine is coming. And the work you are doing, exiles, is pointing immediately and directly to it. I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 12. This is actually a place in scripture where... Haggai Chapter Two is quoted. Verses twenty six through twenty nine. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now He has promised, and here's the quote, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. For receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence in all. For our God is a consuming fire. So this is how, this is how the author of Hebrews interprets the prophecy of Haggai. Which is important, right? Yes. The author of Hebrews understands Haggai's prophecy to speak of a time when God's covenant people will be gathered in a spiritual unshakable kingdom and this is the kingdom that jesus inaugurated when he became god with man in his incarnation this kingdom is a present reality as a temple under construction as god builds his church his dwelling place with man and the people that he dwells in or by the people i should say he indwells by the holy spirit this kingdom is not just a Present reality, but it is also a future reality that will be fully realized when all that can be shaken has been shaken. I would argue that we are living in the time of shaking. And all that remains is God and His temple. That's all that we see in the book of Revelation. Then the whole earth will be the temple, God's special dwelling place. What a glorious promise. What a glorious reality. What a glorious encouragement, folks. We are the builders of God's new temple. We are like those exiles that have been placed in a land with a task to build the temple of God. But do we not often feel the tension that we are not doing what God has called us to do? We're not completing the task. We're not fulfilling the work. There's always so much to be done. It feels like that we make two steps forward in the church and one step back. Or we make two steps forward in the community and one step back. It seems like there's always something that comes at us to ensure that we feel that the work that we're engaged in is not nearly as grand as we hoped it would be. But beloved, it doesn't depend on us. God is building His church. He has ordained that we would be the means through which that took place. But it is God who builds His church. And so when we are discouraged because it's not as grand as we had hoped, what do we do? We take courage. We look to the Lord. We look to the God of the covenant and we work and we labor and we continue I think the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 58 some of a appropriate word of encouragement for us Therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your work is not in vain. In closing, I want to warn any of our unbelieving friends here today or hearing me today, as much as the God's people have much to be encouraged about, if you're an unbeliever, you have very little to be encouraged about. These words of encouragement are reserved for God's covenant people. And if you have placed your if you have not placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation, I am sorry to say that you are not one of God's covenant people. Nothing you can do, no amount of good works No amount of Bible knowledge can make you a part of this unshakable kingdom. You will be shook out. The reason for this, and I do not say this in a, a prideful way. I say it with a heavy heart, with a broken heart. And the reason for this is because people outside of Christ are corrupted by sin in a fundamental way. God did not create humans like this. But as as a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion in the Garden of Eden, everyone born after them inherited this corrupt nature. Everybody. And the only hope for deliverance from that corrupt nature comes through Jesus Christ who, unlike Adam, lived an absolutely perfect life and accomplished what Adam failed to accomplish. But at the same time, at the crucifixion, Jesus endured the wrath of God, not against himself because he lived a perfect life, but against all of those born of Adam who would believe on him. And then to prove to everyone that God accepted this substitutionary atoning sacrifice, Jesus was raised from the dead... And the resurrection testifies to everyone that the only hope of salvation is faith in Christ alone. And so, if you are an unbeliever, I do not want to miss this opportunity to ask you would you be a part of God's covenant people? Would you be a part of the people who make up God's dwelling place on earth? Would you be a part of those who are working for God's glory by serving the Lord and serving one another with the gifts and opportunities that God affords them? Would you be a part of this unshakable kingdom? Again, nothing you can do, no amount of good works, no amount of Bible knowledge can atone. The call of the gospel is repent and believe the gospel. Come and cast yourself helplessly at the mercy of God. And you will find, I can guarantee, if you come repenting and believing and casting yourself helplessly at the mercy of God, you will find that He will in no wise cast you out. But you will find that you will be saved and mysteriously Miraculously, but really become a part of this new and glorious temple that God is building. I'm reminded, and I don't believe that, I don't know that there's a connection, but on the last day, the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried and said, Let all who thirst come unto me and drink for out of his belly as the scripture says will flow rivers of living water so i want to say discouraged weary unbeliever come drink freely from the water of life thank you god even in our failings You are kind to us. Even in our sin, you are merciful to us. Even in our shortcomings, Lord, you give grace. You encourage us when we're discouraged. You strengthen us when we are weak. You bind us up when we are wounded. You feed us when we are hungry. You give us drink when we are thirsty. You give us rest. You give us hope. You call us to yourself. You call us to obedience, and there is goodness in obedience, and then we disobey, and you call us to repentance. You are so patient and kind, and we thank you for that, God. Lord, it is our prayer today for the discouraged that they would take heart, that they would be encouraged. Lord, that they would hear your words and your concern and your care and your compassion. And they would find strength and encouragement, Lord, that their hearts would be lifted, that their eyes would be lifted, that their faces would be lifted that they would feel hope, feel joy. But Lord, not just for the sake of feeling, but Lord, that you would inspire them to work, to carry on the task, or to begin the task that you have called them to and given them opportunity to do. And Lord, we pray for unbelievers. We pray for those that might be hearing my voice just by tuning in to the live stream, Lord. And those that may be here today, we pray that they would see the need for you. That they would realize that there is nothing that they can do to merit your grace and favor. There is nothing that they can do to, to atone for their sins and to achieve salvation for themselves. But rather, Lord, that they would just by your grace, that they, would, that they would know that their only hope of salvation is to cast themselves hopelessly at your feet. And I pray that today would mark a glorious day in their lives, Lord. It would mark the day that they are converted. A day that they know, Lord, that, that they cast their cares on you and discovered that you care for them. This is a work that we cannot do. This is a work that only you can do. And so we appeal to you to do the work that only you can do. And we pray these things in Christ's name. And the church says, Amen.